All right, if you haven't already done so, you can open your Bibles now to that passage, Acts chapter 6. And as I said, our focus is going to be on uh, this uh, description of, of Stephen's early ministry and, and the opposition that it, uh, uh, it provoked from uh, the, many of the, the Jews uh, and from the council, the same Jews who, who had opposed the apostles, the same uh, Jews who had opposed Jesus himself, now begin to oppose the ordained leadership of the church. And as I was saying to the kids, what we see in this passage uh, is that God himself validates Stephen's ministry. In fact, this, this text is bookended with God's public validation of Stephen. And then we have the opposition right there in the middle. And I think we need to look at both. We need to look both at, at how God validates Stephen's ministry. And then we need to look at how and why it was opposed. Because both God's validation... And the Jews' opposition both have something uh, important to teach the church today. So let's, let's begin with how Stephen's ministry was validated. We, we see it there in verse 8. As I said, Stephen, who is described as full of grace and power, now, this is a man, remember, who was chosen to, to be one of the new ordained leaders of the church because he was of good reputation, full of the Spirit, uh, full of, of wisdom. And then when he was actually named in the list in the last chapter, we're told that he was a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And now here again, we're told he's a man full of grace and power. And we're told that Stephen, the, uh, one of the newly ordained leaders of the church in Jerusalem, that he was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now that sounds very similar to what we actually heard about the apostles in the, the previous chapter. Remember all the way back in, in verse 12, we were told, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. But what we need to understand is that this doesn't mean that Stephen is an apostle. Right? That, that's, that's not what's going on here. It's, it's not what is being claimed, and it's not what Stephen himself claimed. Stephen was not one of the, the twelve, as they were described in the previous paragraph. He was not one of the, the apostles whom, whom God had, had chosen to be the, the foundational witnesses of uh, Jesus Christ for the church. But rather, he is one of the ordained leaders who is now building upon the foundation that the apostles had said. And at this early stage in the history of the church, God works miracles through Stephen as a demonstration, not that he is an apostle, but that he is, in fact, an authorized minister of the apostolic gospel. He is one of the men who is now taking that gospel received from the apostles and uh, ministering it to the church. And so this is what is going on here. God himself is validating Stephen's ministry. God himself is validating the, this new ministry of the ordained leaders in the church in Jerusalem. Of course, this raises a question, does it not? It raises a question in our mind that if, that if the ordained leadership of the church are validated by signs and wonders, just like the apostles were, why don't we see that today? Why don't we continue to see uh, the ordained leaders of the church uh, um, validated by signs and wonders? Why haven't I been validated by signs and wonders? So I'm standing before you today as a minister of the gospel. Why is this not duplicated? Why do we not continue to, to see this? And I would suggest to you that there are actually a few reasons for that. 
But primarily, what we, what we recognize is that God is doing this at the beginning. He's doing this at, the, at that foundational period of transition where, where the, the ministry of the apostles is now being taken up by the, uh, the ordained leaders in the church, not so that they can continue to lay the foundation. It's the apostles who've done that work. And once the foundation is laid, you don't have to keep laying the foundation. But rather now, these new leaders are building upon that foundation. And at that first stage, that at the very beginning of that transition, God demonstrates that he is with this, that he is good, that this is, this is his design for his church, that he is going to build his church in this way through the ordained leaders that he himself gives to the church. And so in places today where we see that the church has been established for generations, we, we don't have to uh, continue to see these same signs and wonders to believe, but rather we do like what Sam is doing down in Uduwal today. Those who are in one established church go and they, they acknowledge and they, they um, uh, validate the, the ministry of a, of a new church that is being planted. And they say, yes, this is a good church. This is a church that will preach the word. This is a church that will preach the apostolic gospel. It's why it's so important that Sam is there this morning and not with us. We miss him. We wish he was here, especially to do the children's sermon. But nevertheless, it's good that he is there. Because he is, he is going as one, as the representative of the church, to help establish a new church, a new witness in a new area. And that's what you see today in, in places where the church has been established for generations. On the frontiers, we may sometimes see signs and, and wonders. We, we hear reports of, of such things. And um, not all such reports are true, but we don't, not all such reports are false. God still can, can do miraculous things to, to, to establish the ministry of the gospel on the frontiers where the gospel is going for the first time. But generally speaking, where the gospel is already established, he does not continue to work this way, but rather he works through those who were validated at first. And that's what I want us to see this morning. That's what I want us to focus on this morning. I don't want us to get distracted by the fact that, well, wait a second, why don't we see this today? But rather, I want us to focus on the fact that what happens here was of great benefit not only to them, but to us today. The benefits of this still redound through the generations. Think about it. Think about it this way. Stephen's ministry was validated, right? It was, it was validated by signs and wonders. It was validated by, by his shining face, which, which demonstrated that God was with him as he did this work. His ministry was, was validated to that first generation so that they had uh, reason beyond doubt to believe that this was a man who was speaking the word of God. This was a man who was a faithful minister of God's gospel. And that matters for us. It matters for us that that first generation was validated in that way. It matters because let me ask you a question. Why do you believe the gospel today? Why do you believe the apostolic gospel? Why do you believe the, this gospel that Jesus is the Christ and that he is the Lord and Savior of, of God's people? Why do you believe that? There's probably a lot of ways that you could answer that question, but I would suggest to you that for, for most of the people in this room, if we were honest, the, 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 the most basic answer is we believe because our parents taught us to believe. We believe because our parents taught us that this is the gospel of God. 
We believe because we were, we were raised from the beginning to, to know that, that this Bible contains the very words of God and that the gospel declared therein is the gospel of God. Not, a, not man's gospel, not a gospel that man made up, but this is the very word of God for the salvation of his people. And in today's climate, that can sometimes, we can sometimes be embarrassed of that answer. We can sometimes wonder whether that's really a very good answer. But I want to suggest to you this morning that it is. It is actually a very good answer. You believe because your parents taught you that this is the truth. And their parents taught them. And their parents taught them. Going back generation after generation after generation. And at some point, you have to ask, well, well, did the first generation have good reason to believe? You see, you can't just keep going in an infinite regress. At some point you have to ask, well, did that first generation have reason to believe? And that's what we're being told here in this text this morning. That first generation had better than good reason. They had better than endorsements on the back of a book. They had better even than the, the, the laying on of hands by the apostles. That was, that was powerful. That was important. But even more than that, God himself made clear that this is my ministry. This is my gospel. This is not a gospel that man made up. And so that that first generation had good reason to believe because, because God worked signs and wonders not only through the apostles, but even through that first generation of ordained leadership to demonstrate this, this is my church and I am at work. And because that first generation had reason to believe, and because that first generation taught the next, which, which taught the next, which taught the next, which eventually came down to us today, we stand on a solid foundation. God himself has made clear that this is his gospel. And so let's not focus on the fact that, that we don't see signs and wonders today. Let us focus on the fact that God has given public validation of this gospel to his church. And let us rejoice in that foundation that he has laid for our faith. Because what God did for them, he did for us. Even as each generation has taught the next, hey, this is the gospel that we receive from God himself. But despite that public validation, despite the signs and the wonders that God worked through Stephen, despite his face even shining like the face of an angel as he, as he stood before the council. What do we see in this text? We see that despite all of that, despite that all that God did uh, to, to, to give credence to their faith, to, to lead them to believe, despite all of that, Stephen's ministry was opposed. Now, Luke doesn't tell us explicitly what Stephen's message was. He, he doesn't tell us explicitly what the, the message that was opposed is, but if we've been following along in the book of Acts to this point, we, we know, we know the message that Stephen is proclaiming because we, we know the context. Just flip back with me to the very end of chapter 5. So Stephen is an ordained leader, ordained by the apostles. And what do we read about the apostles at the end of chapter 5? At the end of, the, of end of chapter 5, we read that every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ, or that the Christ is Jesus. The Christ, that's, that, that is the anointed one. That's what that word means. It's not Jesus' name, it's actually his title. He is the anointed one. 
That means that he is the the promised Messiah, that he is the the promised Savior, the the prophet, priest, and king of God's people. In fact, this is is what Peter himself said before the council earlier in chapter 5. Scan up to to verse 31, or beginning at verse 30. He said, uh, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree, but God exalted him at his right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. This is the apostolic gospel. Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the promised Messiah. And as such, he is the leader or the the prince, the king of his people. And he is the savior of his people. This is the apostolic gospel that that Stephen has been ordained to preach. And, and, And think about the implications of that gospel. That gospel means that, first of all, that because Jesus is the Savior of his people, it means that those who call upon his name will be saved. As Paul will say elsewhere, none who call upon the name of the Lord will ever be put to shame. If you are here this morning and you have received and rested upon Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you have looked to him and to his finished work upon the cross, his, his death and resurrection, his, his ascension, his, his promised return, if you are resting in his work on your behalf, then you are saved. And in the last day, you will be saved. You will be received into the kingdom. You will never be put to shame. That is the, the promise of the gospel. But of course, there, there's a flip side to that. And the flip side to that is that Jesus alone is the Savior. And that those who reject Him will not be saved. It's actually what we read in in, in John chapter 3. We're all familiar with verse 16. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. But if you keep reading in that chapter, what you discover is that those who do not believe remain under condemnation. It's not that they're condemned for not believing. They they were already condemned. It's what we confessed in our confession of faith this morning. What does every sin deserve? Every sin deserves the wrath and, and judgment of God. Every sin brings us under His condemnation. And all of us are sinners. All of mankind are our sinners. All have fallen short of God's glory. All have transgressed His law. And so those who reject Jesus remain under condemnation. While those who receive him will be received into the very kingdom of God. But more than this, that he is not only Savior, but that he is leader, that he is his king, means that we are saved for a purpose. We are are saved into his service. We have been, as we heard in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning, in our assurance of, of pardon, We have been saved by grace apart from works, but we have been saved unto works. We are His workmanship. He has created us, recreated us in Christ for those good works that He is preparing for us to walk in. This is the Gospel. He is Lord and Savior. He is leader and Savior. He is Prince and Savior. He is King and Savior. This this is the Gospel. And we can be sure that this is the Gospel that, that Stephen was preaching. This is the Gospel that the leaders were opposing. This is the Gospel that they hated. 
The good news that, that Jesus is the Messiah, the good news that he is the, the leader and savior of God's people is the gospel that they were opposing. But notice what Luke tells us in verse 10. Despite their hatred of this gospel, despite their opposition to this gospel, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And that that phrase there, the wisdom and the spirit, means the the spiritual wisdom, the spirit-wrought wisdom with which he presented this gospel. Now again, Luke doesn't tell us specifically what Stephen said to his opponents. He he doesn't give us in detail the the arguments and the uh, the presentation that that Stephen used. But again, we we can make a pretty good guess based on the context, based on what we've seen thus far in the book of Acts. We can be sure that Stephen is using the same arguments that the apostles have been using, the the same arguments that the Spirit gave to the apostles as they stood before the council he now gives to the ordained leaders. And what were those arguments? Well, just very briefly, the first is an appeal to Jesus' resurrection. It's what we've seen the apostles do again and again and again so far. Every time they have a chance to speak, they they are reminding those to whom they speak that God raised Jesus from the dead. The same Jesus who who had only months before been put to death in Jerusalem. This same Jesus who the leaders tried to to, uh, invalidate. This same Jesus whom they, they tried to shame by hanging him on a tree. This same Jesus God himself glorified and God himself vindicated by raising him up again and bringing him to his right hand in the heavenlies from where he will come again to judge the living and the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is the linchpin of our faith. So much so that Paul can say later in one of his his letters that if, if Jesus is not raised, our faith is a waste of time. It is futile. It is vain. But he is raised. And therefore we know these things are true. And we should have expected them because the second argument that the apostles use, not only has Jesus been raised from the dead, not only is the tomb empty and Jesus seated at the right hand of God in the heavenlies, but God told us he was going to do this again and again through through the Old Testament texts. The Old Testament law bore witness to this gospel. Jesus himself said so on the road to Amaze. He said, did you not know from the Old Testament text that the, that the king, uh, that the coming Messiah had to suffer and die and that he would rise again? Did you not know? It's what Peter did to, to some extent on the day of, of Pentecost when he said, listen people, this is, this is, these people are not drunk, but they are, this is the fulfillment of what God said he was going to do. God is is doing through Christ what he said he was going to do. And we'll see Paul continue to do the same thing uh, later in the book of Acts. As as after his conversion, after he meets the resurrected Jesus, who who for him, uh, is that is the the transition point. He, He realizes if Jesus is raised, this gospel is true. And he begins to go back through the Old Testament scriptures and he begins to, to demonstrate to the very people uh, whom, whom, who used to cheer him on as he persecuted the church. He said, no, I was wrong. Jesus is the Christ. Don't you see it here in the text? And so we know that, that Stephen was doing the same thing. He was pointing to the resurrected Lord and he was pointing to the, the unfolding mystery in the Old Testament text. And he's saying, listen, this is God's gospel. This is God's gospel. This is the the spirit-wrought wisdom 
by which the the truth comes to the church. And and we know that that as this spirit-wrought gospel was proclaimed, many believed, many came to faith. We've, We've seen it again and again and again throughout these early chapters in the book of Acts. That the Word of God was increasing. That people were were coming to faith. But of course, the wonder of this message, the the wonder of this spirit-wrought wisdom only seeks to to highlight the the evil of Stephen's opponent's subterfuge. Look Look at verse 11. When they could not withstand Stephen's spiritual wisdom, what did they do? Rather than submitting to the truth, they sought to suppress it by secretly instigating false witnesses. Again, I would suggest to you that 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 in itself is revealing. That that in itself is is telling. It is a, a picture of sinful man's bent to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Yes, God has made Himself plain. God has spoken through His chosen instruments and He has publicly validated those instruments beyond reasonable doubt so that we can know, so that we can rest assured that this is the very Word of God, that this is not man's Gospel, but this is is the Gospel of God Himself concerning His Son, Jesus Christ. God has, has done that. But despite all that God has done to to make His gospel plain and to reveal His gospel to to mankind, despite all of that, sinful men continue to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because they do not want God to be God. And they do not want a gospel that turns them into servants of the King. They want to be King. They, They want to rule their own life. They want to be captain of their own Ship. And so they resist any gospel that proclaims God as God and themselves as His servants. And we need to recognize that that same sinful tendency is at work in every one of our own hearts. By God's grace, we are, we are no longer mastered by sin. By, by God's grace, the domain of sin has, has been broken. We have been set free, but sti- sin still dwells with us and it still wages war against our soul. And one of the lies that it is always whispering to us is that we ought to suppress these inconvenient, unfavorable truths. You don't need to believe that. That's, that's a straitjacket. You don't need to, to believe that. That's going to ruin your fun. You don't need to, to believe that. You need to decide for yourself what is true. You need to be the master of your own fate. This is the lie of unrighteousness, and this is the lie that that Stephen's opponents believe. And and so because they have believed this lie, because they have rejected the truth, they seek to suppress it. And we can see the, the, truths, the specific truths that they're seeking to suppress and the charges that they bring against Stephen. They're actually stated twice. We, we see them first in, in verse 11. There, what, what is the charge? The, the charge is that they are speaking blasphemy against God and Moses. And then when they end up before the council, these, these charges are repeated by the false witnesses, saying these, these men are speaking words against this holy place and the law. I would suggest to you that those are really the the same charges just repeated twice. The the basic charges are that the temple 
is that, they, that, is that this gospel displaces the temple as the place of worship and the law as the, the practice or the, the way of worship. That the, the, these people are going to speak against the temple and they're speaking against the, the law. And, and therefore, they, they cannot be trusted because we know that the temple is the place that God dwells and the law is the word that he has given to his people. So those are the charges that are, that are brought against Stephen. And Luke tells us plainly that these charges were false, but we need to make sure we don't misunderstand what that means. When Luke tells us that these charges are false, he doesn't mean that, that, that Jesus had nothing to say about the temple or that he had nothing to say about the Old Testament laws. Rather, the point is that they had misunderstood what Jesus says about the temple and what Jesus says about the Old Testament law. You see, Jesus was not setting these things aside as if, as if they were worthless, but rather he was coming to fulfill them, as he himself even says. Because think about it, the temple is not the place where we worship. Jesus himself said that. When asked by the, the woman uh, at the well whether uh, the, the Samaritans or the Jews were right about the, the place of worship, Jesus said, there's coming a day when you will worship neither at their temple or at the Jewish temple. There's coming a day when, when the temple will no longer be the, the place of worship. Not because the temple was worthless, but because the temple was merely a promise. The temple was the promise of Emmanuel. The temple was the, the promise of God with his people. And that promise has now been fulfilled in Jesus Christ who dwells with his people by the Spirit, so much so that the people of God are called the temple. The people of God are, the, are the, 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 the living stones being built up into the temple. God now dwells with his people by his Spirit. His, his presence is not in a temple made by hands, as if, as if a temple made by hands could ever contain him. The temple was always only a promise, a promise of what God was doing, of what God was working to, God dwelling with his people, a promise that is now fulfilled in Christ through the Spirit. This is, the, again, the, the wonder of the, of the gospel. And this is the, the truth. This is one of the truths that they opposed. But they didn't only oppose the, uh, the, the setting aside of the temple uh, as it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They also opposed the setting aside of the law, because that's the, the second accusation that is brought. The second accusation that, is, that Jesus, that these, Stephen is speaking against the law. And again, God doesn't just leave the law alone. Yes, the, the, God's moral laws are still a lamp unto our feet. They are still the, the blueprint for life as it, as it is meant to be in this world. And yes, we can still learn from, from even the, the, the civil laws that God gave to his, his Old Testament people as, a, as a, a clear demonstration of what it looks like to apply God's moral law in a particular community. And we can, we can learn from that today. But we have to understand that we are not under the law, and particularly, we are not under the ceremonial laws. Those ceremonial laws, those, those, those rites and those ceremonies and those, those sacrifices... They were all promises. They all pointed to the, what needed to be done for sinful men to dwell with a holy God. And all of those ceremonies, all of those rites, all of those sacrifices have now been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so we do not come to God through the law. We come to God through 
Christ. We come into his presence this morning not with a, a sacrifice, but rather we come into his presence under the blood of the sacrifice, the once for all sacrifice for sins that Jesus himself offered upon the cross, a sacrifice never to be repeated because it was perfect in itself. So we are not under the ceremonial law. We, we don't come to a, a temple, but rather God is with us as we gather as the people of God and as we gather in the name of Jesus. That's the gospel. And those are the truths that Stephen's opponents were uh, opposing because they wanted to hold on to the, the Jewish temple and the, the Jewish law because their identity was, was in their Jewishness, not in Jesus. And that's a warning to us today, is it not? It's a warning to us today that God has, has declared his gospel, and it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel that he is the Messiah. He is the King and the, the Savior. He is the one who, who can reconcile us to God. And if we cling to anything else as our identity, if we cling to anything else as our life, then we will be lost. But if we will cling to him, we will be saved. God himself says so. He says so through the signs and the wonders that Stephen performed. He says so through, through his shining face as he, as he stood before the council. Just think about that. Whose face shone when he left the presence of God? Was it not Moses? And now Stephen's face shines as if God were shouting with a megaphone. Hey, it's Stephen who has Moses right, not the Jewish leaders. It's Stephen who has Moses right. Moses was pointing you to Jesus. Don't cling to Moses. Let Moses bring you to Jesus. And that's where we all must end up. We all must end up resting upon Jesus alone for our salvation. For there is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. So if you are here this morning, hear the good news. The good news confirmed by God himself. That he put forth Jesus as the sacrifice for sins. He did that. And he promises that all who call upon his name will never be put to shame. All who call upon his name will be saved. And because God himself makes that promise, that's why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in your mercy. We rejoice in the gospel that you have revealed through your apostles and, and through your ordained leaders, Father. A gospel that you have preserved in your church from generation to generation to generation. A gospel that has come down even to us. Father God, give us the grace that we need to receive it. Give us the grace we need to, to, to renounce the sinful desire to suppress the truth and to rather receive it with joy, to believe it, and to bring forth its fruit in our life, all to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.